Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1. As my children pointed out, it is February 2nd, 2020, 02022020, which reads the same forward and backwards. The last time that happened was in 1010. Uh, I know we're old, but I don't think any of us remember that. <laughs> exactly. Last week, we started the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That was last week's lesson. We made it that far. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish converts who, because of the difficulties of the time, were rethinking whether being a Christian was all that was cut out to be. Maybe we have rejected something that worked and have followed after something that is false, and what do we do? In fact, the implication of the book is that a lot of them had just fallen away from the faith, totally. And the book of Hebrews is written to tell this Jewish audience, Jesus is better than, and fill in the blank. He is better than the prophets that were before us. In times past, Hebrews 1.1 says, God spoke to us through prophets. Prophets were those who heard the word of God and proclaimed it to the people. They were really cool guys, right? Now, I might add, it was a lousy job. Because when you're telling the word of God, half the time people don't want to hear it. So they pick up big rocks and things like that and throw them at you. But God had used prophets, and now Jesus is the word of God. He was better than the prophets. Today we're going to see that Jesus is better than the angels. We're going to talk about angels and what they do sort of. We're going to talk about really the fact, though, that Jesus has been set apart and is greater than the angels themselves. So, what does this have to do with us? Most of us are not Jews who have converted to Christianity. But all of us have, at different times in our life, either faced difficulties or at least dry spells where we just felt like, is it really worth it? Do I really need to stay following this Jesus guy? It's like I've said in here before, there are a lot of people who think Jesus was a really good teacher. He taught, he lived a wonderful life, he showed us how we're supposed to live our lives, but that's all he is. Jesus, Socrates, Confucius, pick your favorite old wise person. I didn't say wise guy, old wise person, and that's who Jesus was. And we begin to think, you know, maybe, maybe we're going down the wrong path. All of us 
have been in that situation or we know people that are in that situation. And the reality is Jesus is better than fill in the blank with anything else. So we pick it up today in verse, let's see. Well, we'll get a running start. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. After making purification for sins. I thought a lot this week about those five words. After making purification, it's like, oh yes, after saving the world, this is what he went and did. That's what this is saying. After doing what was necessary for us to be saved, the entire earthly ministry of Jesus is tied up in those five words. After making purification for sin. Now, the reality is the author of the book of Hebrews, and we did discuss last week that we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is later going to talk about what those five words mean. He's going to talk about the Jewish sacrificial system, why they did it, and the fact that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Because you see, in the Jewish sacrificial system, every year, at a minimum, every year you had to slit the throat of the animal, put the blood on the altar for the purification of your sin. And next year you had to do it again, and the next year you had to do it again, and the next year, and the next year, and forever. Because it couldn't change you. Whereas Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, dying once to pay the penalty for all of our sin. We will see that later in the book. But the fascinating part of the imagery is that not only is he the sacrifice, he is the priest that is offering the sacrifice. He is the great high priest. So while he was the sacrifice for our sin, he continues to be the high priest that intercedes on behalf of us before the Father. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is Jesus right now? He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. So, just kind of in passing, he says, after making purification for our sins... But then last week, just kind of in passing, oh yes, he created the world. So here you are, here you are, in this case, a Jew who would believe in God, 
who would believe that God created the world, and you had become a believer, and you have to be reminded that Jesus is the one that created the world. And, by the way, Jesus is the one who paid, who purified us from our sin. What does that have to do with us? Well, some of us grew up in a church, and from the day I was born, I believed that God created the world. But once again, sometimes we just start sliding back thinking, well, he's just another guy. What this whole book, or at least the first half of the book, is going to teach us is that Jesus is not just another guy. He's not just another prophet sent by God. If you're a good Muslim, you believe that Jesus is a prophet. Just like Muhammad was a prophet, just like other Old Testament characters were prophets. They came, they spoke the word of God, and they died. If you're a good Muslim, that's what you think Muhammad was. He was a man, he brought the word from God, and then he died. Jesus is not like that. Today, today, we in our society are bombarded with things that are alternatives. Some other thing that we ought to have instead of Jesus. And it's probably not spoken about as instead of. It's just kind of a distraction that keeps us from worshiping Jesus. After making purification for sins. We do need to understand this, even though he's going to explain it at depth in the chapters that follow. Let's remind ourselves, as we remind ourselves frequently in here, that we were born and we are sinners. As sinners, we are separated from God. Being separated from God, I believe we as human beings have spent all of our lives trying to get back to being right with God. You go, wait a minute, I know lots of people who aren't trying at all. Well, they are, they're just trying in really bizarre ways. You have people who try to get back to God by inventing some other religion. We have people who are trying to get back to the things of God by chasing after the things of God. The blessings. It's like we talked about when we talked through the fruit of the Spirit. Everybody wants love. They're just looking for love in all the wrong places. Everybody wants love. Everybody wants joy. Everybody wants peace. Everybody wants these things, but they want them apart from God because in our sinful nature, we are looking for the fulfillment of all of that someplace else. But Jesus, who came to earth to be the sacrifice for our sin, think about this. You, I, we, are sinners. The wages of sin is death. So if you die, and by the way, you're going to, 
unless Jesus comes back quick, we're all going to die, right? When you die, your death is the result of your sin. That's all there is to it. But, comma, since Jesus did not sin, we're going to see this in just a moment, since Jesus did not sin, his death did not result in the, was not a payment for his sin because he had none. So his sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice was the payment for our sin, thus allowing us to enter the presence of a holy God. That's what Jesus did. And that's what is mentioned in these five verses. After making purification for our sins. After that. As if that's just, oh yeah, by the way, we all know that, right? Like we saw last week. After creating the world. As if you and I could do that one day, right? After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And we're going to spend the rest of the chapter and on into part of the next chapter talking about angels. Why angels? How many of you thought about angels this week? I did, because that was what the lesson was about, right? It is interesting in our society that people's interest in angels comes and goes. There was a time period not very long ago, we may still be in it for all I know, that people were somewhat obsessed with angels, you know, talking about angels, what angels did, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it was an excuse not to think about God. You know, it's like God is the judgmental whatever guy, but angels, who can argue with angels? Aren't they cute? Well, the reason we think they're cute is we've never seen one. Okay? In the Bible, when people meet angels that are not in human form, when they meet angels, they're usually terrified. When the angels show up to tell the shepherds about the birth of Jesus, the, angel, the shepherds don't go, oh, you're really cute. It says they were terrified of them. So what are angels? Angels, first off, are created beings just like you and I are in that we're created. That's where the similarity ends. They are created by God, but they are spiritual beings. Think about that. They are spiritual, non-physical beings. You going to make a question? Or? Okay. They can. His question was, can they manifest themselves to appear as people? And the answer is yes. In fact, we are told in the New Testament, sometimes when we practice hospitality, we have entertained angels unaware. 
In the Old Testament, you see angels showing up to deliver messages. Now, in some of those passages, there's actually a theological discussion that we have today that when the extra person shows up in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is that an angel or is that the pre-incarnate Jesus? In that case, I'll go with Jesus. But there are those who would think, no, it's an angel. It is a spiritual being. When the people, what do we call them at this point of my discussion, when the two guys show up to talk to Abraham to tell him what they're going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah, and he has this negotiation going on, et cetera, et cetera, are they angels? Yes, probably. Okay? So, angels are created beings just like you and I, but they are spiritual beings, meaning they do not inherently have a physical body. What do they do? Well, the passage actually tells us what they do. Skip down to verse 14. Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Somewhere else in here, it talks about them being the messengers. They are ministering spirits, and they are messengers of God. Now, just to make sure we cover all of angelology in one simple lesson, we know from the Scripture that a group of the angels rebelled against God, probably about a third of them, and that would be Satan and his followers. Now, why is this important? Satan is an angel. Can we repeat that? Satan is an angel. We are not Zoroastrians. We do not believe that there is a good God and a bad God of equal power and equal influence. And everything in the world is a struggle between the good and the bad, and who knows who's going to win? No. God is God, and Satan the devil is an angel. Hmm. That could produce all kinds of interesting discussions that we're not going to talk about today. Okay? Except to tell you God is going to win. Okay? Just in case you wonder. And sometimes you do wonder. Some days I wonder, who's going to win this? God wins. I've read the end of the book. So we have good angels. We have bad angels. We have angels who serve God, and we have angels that struggle against God. They are, what did I say? Spiritual beings. The Jews and Christians and those of other religions have been fascinated with the idea of angels. Today, we live in a materialistic age. By that, we mean that things that are real are made of stuff. That is real. So we tend to discount 
the existence of spiritual beings. I mean, what would that look like? If you put it on the scale, what would it weigh? I'm sure you've heard the jokes made about medieval theologians discussing how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. You take a pen, has a head, and we make fun of that, but the question was really, what does it mean for a non-material spiritual being to occupy space? What does that mean? If I took the smallest space that I can imagine, the head of a pen, how many non-physical spiritual beings can I put in that space? That's the discussion. What does that even mean? So, it's hard to get to the point. We'll talk to the angels about you. <laughs> if I believe in a complex universe that is one that is not just limited to a physical reality, this is not all that exists. I believe in a universe that is considerably more complex than that. If I believe in a spiritual world, then I believe there is God, I believe there are angels, and I believe there's mankind. Now, I'm sitting here having this discussion. Where in this hierarchy does Jesus fit. If he's simply a prophet, he's down there with us human beings. That's what he is. Now, within the realm of human beings, he may be at the top of the pecking order. He was a really good human being, but he was just a human being. He had a physical body, so he can't be a an angel, he can't be a purely spiritual being. So where in this complex universe does Jesus exist? And this chapter exists to tell us one point. I can tell you this point, and we can leave, and we can go home and watch the pregame for the Super Bowl that probably started yesterday. <laughs> Here's the answer. There's God, there's angels, there's us, and Jesus is God. He is not below the angels. He is not co-equal with the angels. He is above every other being created in the universe. What did we say in last week's lesson? He is the exact imprint of God. He is God. And we had a brief discussion, brief discussion last week, of the whole idea of the Trinity. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. 
I think I covered all the blocks of that diagram. Angels, us. And the author of the book of Hebrews is going to spend the rest of this chapter quoting Old Testament passages to tell us that the Old Testament itself teaches that Jesus is above the angels. And that's what it's all about. You can go to sleep now. <laughs> Having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. There is some difficulty in some of the language used in this chapter. We're going to see it here. We're going to see it in just a moment. He became having become as much superior to angels. You could almost imagine somebody reading that thinking there was a time when he was not superior to the angels. Because it talks about becoming superior to the angels. Well, the question is, when in time did that happen? But that's not the right question. Because before there was time, he was. In fact, in a moment, we're going to talk about the word begotten. This has messed with theologians for 2,000 years. The Son is begotten of the Father. That means the Father had a child at some point in time. No. It is demonstrating the relationship of the Father to the Son, and this is telling us that Jesus, because of who He is, became superior to the angels. There is not, was not, will not be, whatever other word I can think of, there was not a time when the angels were superior to Jesus. It's not like Jesus came to earth as a human being. He did really, really well. God loved him so much that God elevated him. He was already elevated. But, 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 after he completed his mission on earth, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. When was he not at the right hand of the Father? Well, when he was physically here on earth, he was not sitting there, but he had always been co-equal with the Father. He was the exact radiance. As I said last week, if you could imagine there being such a thing as spiritual DNA, he has the same DNA as the Father. He's not just a guy that did real well and God elevated him to some wonderful position. You know, we're not talking about Roman Caesars here, where the Caesar, when he dies, was elevated to the pantheon of gods because he was so important. And pretty soon they just start elevating themselves before they died. No! Jesus was and is above the angels. Think if you can. Think of you, if you can, of the greatest, most influential, powerful being imaginable other than God. And Jesus is above all of them. 
I've told you before, my youngest daughter and I play this game at times, you know. Who could win, you know, if Gandalf fought this person, you know, if Harry Potter fought this game, who would win? Let me give you a game. Who would win? Jesus versus fill in the blank. The answer is Jesus. And I, and I might add, my baby is turning 18 this week. <sighs> a lot of you remember when she was born. I do. <laughs> but Jesus is better than. Why do I keep harping on this? Because I know, I know how we think. Yeah, Jesus is my buddy, and he's my friend. And you know what? He is. But you know what? He is the Son of God. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? This is taken from Psalm chapter 2 which I do think we did. Remember this whole discussion about who the Messiah was, what authority he had? Each of these passages that we're reading here is taken from the Old Testament. I had to come up with a cheat sheet. It's not real hard. You look at the bottom of your Bible and it tells you where they came from. It doesn't take a lot of work. If I'm trying to convince a Jewish audience about who Jesus is, I go back to the Old Testament and I say that this isn't something that just popped up in the book of Matthew. This isn't something that popped up later in history. It has been there from the very beginning when Jesus, no, when God, through the psalmist, told us that God said, you are my son and I have begotten you. This is talking a thousand years before about the coming of the Messiah. And the question is this. To which of you, to which of the angels, to which of any other created being, has God said, you are my son? Huh. It is interesting. The scripture talks about us becoming children of God. We have this long discussion about adoption, and we become children of God. I re I've told you before when... Teresa was sharing the gospel with one of our children, and the child prayed to receive Christ. And Teresa said, you are now a child of God. To which the child responded, so, does that make you an adult of God? <laughs> I have clever kids. We are children of God by adoption. But make no mistake, we are not God. Jesus is always distinct. Jesus is always different. He is the firstborn. He is the begotten one, which demonstrates his relationship to the Father, not 
the fact that some point in time he did not exist. We are adopted children. Jesus is the Son of God. Remember that distinction. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That is taken from Samuel. It is an interesting passage, because if you read it in context, he's actually talking to David. Okay? David is going to be the king. David is going to be my son. But we know, right, that David was given the promise that his descendant would sit on the throne forever. Guess what? David is not sitting on the throne forever. His descendant, Jesus, is sitting on the throne forever. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Once again, he's distinguishing between the mission, the job of the angels, and the mission or job of Jesus. What is the mission or job of Jesus? Well, we just spent a little bit of time talking about that. After he had made purification for sins, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. What is his mission? To make us have a right relationship with God. What is he doing right now? He's interceding on our behalf to the Father. What is the mission of angels? Not that. The job of the angels are to be messengers, to send to us, to help us, to minister to us, and I might add, not in this passage, but I might add, they are continually worshiping before the Father. That's what they're doing. The angels are in his presence worshiping. The angels are on earth ministering to us. More about that in just a moment. It is interesting what he says, though. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Back to the, oh, aren't they cute kind of idea, right? They're not that cute. They are one of those things that if you're on their good side, life is good. If you're on their bad side, you don't want to be on their bad side. Remember, we had this discussion numerous times. Jesus is on the cross, or before he gets there and the disciples want to start a rebellion, he says, don't bother. He said, if I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels. And I've made the observation in here before. How many legions of angels would it have taken? How many angels would it have taken to get Jesus off the cross? One. One angel. He's off the cross. End of the story. Nobody's messing with him. One angel with his sword. It's over. You don't want to mess with them. But that angelic being that you don't want to mess with is ministering on your behalf and or being God's 
messenger. But of the Son, of the angels, he says this, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That is Psalms and a little bit of Isaiah thrown in. What is he telling us? He's telling us that the Son is on a throne and the angels are the messenger boys. Now, don't get me wrong. Throughout this first half of the book of Hebrews, we're going to talk about Jesus being better than. Jesus is better than the prophets. That was last week's lesson. Don't think for one moment, therefore the prophets are insignificant. The prophets were doing what the prophets were supposed to do. They were doing what God had called them to do. Good guys. The fact that Jesus is God and the angels are the messengers does not lessen the importance of the angels. It just means they're not God. Why is this important? Because when I convince you, and I'll have difficulty convincing you after all of these years, when I convince you that you are not God, it doesn't mean you're a nobody. It means you're a created being just like the angels, and you were given a job by God, and just like the angels, you can say, sure, I'll do it, or you can say, no, I'm not. And you can rebel. And having made that choice, there are consequences that go with it. But what did he say to the Son? To the angels, he said, you are my ministers of fire. But to the Son, he said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Here's a hard question. How long is Jesus going to reign? Forever. Okay? It's not through a brief period of time. It's not a human lifespan. It's not even just the millennial kingdom. It is forever and ever. That's the time span of his reign. The scepter, the scepter, that thing that demonstrates your power and authority, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. What demonstrates his power, his holiness? After you made purification for sins, what was it that kept you from entering the presence of a holy God? You're not holy. Because of your sin, you are separated from God. But the king that is on the throne has the scepter of righteousness. And he can make us righteous. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This is talking about Jesus. Now, just an observation. Doug Cecil, in his sermon last week, talked about 
the sower and the seeds and the fruit and all of that. And the seed that really bears fruit, bears fruit. And he had a discussion about what that fruit was. And his second answer was the fruit of the Spirit. His first answer, though, is Christ-likeness. We are to be little Christ. We are to be Christians. So if we are being little Christ, we will demonstrate fruit, and that fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But if he is in love with righteousness and hates wickedness, what are we supposed to do? This is real easy. You just don't like the answer. We are to love righteousness. We are to love righteousness. And we are to run away from wickedness. But guess what? Wickedness is so much fun. So we think. So we think. To the extent that we are imitating Christ, we love and we hate the proper things. But it is interesting. This is not given here as a, well, after lots of struggle, Jesus decided doing right was the right thing to do. No, it is the character of who he is. And I might add, his hatred of wickedness, you ready for this? Made him love sinners. He didn't go around hating the prostitutes. If you wanted to use the word hate, and I'm not going to do it, but if you wanted to, the people he hated were the church people. There's a whole long lesson there. We won't do that one. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He has been anointed beyond every other created thing. Why? Because he is not a created thing. He is co-equal with the Father. Question. The question that he's addressing right here. To which of the angels did he make these comments? And the answer is none. And you, Lord, have laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Okay. We are good, old-fashioned, modern-day materialist. We believe that if you can't touch it, taste it, smell it, measure it, it doesn't exist. That is the dominant philosophy of 21st century America. Material. The material world is what really exists. What do we learn about the material world? It's all going to perish. Do any of you have any doubt about that? Really? I mean, I've shared before, you know, I've got this obsession. Don't tell my wife this. I have this obsession with buying books, right? 
I've got books everywhere. You know what? Every one of those books is going to disintegrate. When I die, I'm almost 100% assured that none of my children are going to want all these books. And every one of these books is going to show up at the used bookstore and be bought by the pound by somebody who's going to use them for decorations in their house, and then they're going to get thrown away, and they're going to perish. Everything that you own is going to perish. Everything that you and I think is of such value is going to perish. But Jesus will exist forever. And are you ready for this? Those who are on his side will be with him. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. I don't have to explain this to you, right? Any of you think your clothes don't wear out? I cannot tell you how many dress shirts that I have that have holes in their elbows. I can't imagine why. <laughs> they just do. Why? Because the material world was not ever intended to be the ultimate reality. It's just not. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you, you, Jesus, you, the Son of God, are the same, and your years will have no end. End of story. So, here's the question. Are you going to spend your life Chasing after that which will wear out, that which will decay, that which, as we read elsewhere, the moths will eat up, that will rust, that will fall apart, or are you going to pursue that which lasts forever? It's a simple question, but it's the question that the author of Hebrews is explaining to the audience. And as I said, we're not good Jews who became Christians. But we are Christians who look at the world and go, yeah, that's cute. I think I'll follow after that. And we begin to follow after that, not saying we're going to follow after that and turn away from Jesus. It's just that we start following that. And pretty soon, it is a distraction. The whole book of Hebrews is calling you to come back. Do not go chasing after other things. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, and I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? There's going to be a battle, and Jesus is going to win. Okay? Questions? Do you want to be on the winning side or not? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Here's the weird thing, right? God, angels, us, and the angels in the middle minister to us. Why? Because they do the work of the Father. 
And guess what? We're called to do the work of the Father. As I said at the very beginning, we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about angels. We don't. Sometimes we do. We look at the greeting cards that have the cherubs on them, and isn't that cute? Valentine's Day is 13, 12 days away, and we'll have all the little fancy cupids, and we'll think, isn't that an angel? Or at Christmas time, we watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and Clarence shows up, and he's an angel, and we're waiting for the bell to ring to get his wings. Baloney, right? But we do think about a lot of things. And if the angels are above everything else in this physical material world, because everything else in this physical material world is going to wear out, why do we spend our time chasing after that which will not last? And I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to me, because I told you a while ago, right, I've got all these piles of books and nobody's ever going to want them. They're just not. And guess what? Jesus is going to last forever. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus purified our sins. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.